Today we're going to be in Matthew 23, and we're going to cover the second half of the chapter, because two Sundays ago we started uh, the first half of the chapter, and we're going to be starting with verse 13. But what did we cover the last time? Well, we know that in Matthew 23, we're getting close to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, so the crucifixion is coming up, and this appears to be one of the last public teachings of Jesus before the crucifixion. And what does he leave his listeners? He leaves his listeners that the religious system of the day was corrupt, and he really rebukes them, chastises them, and does this in a public format so the people can see as well. So you may wonder, why did Jesus leave his listeners with such a kind of downer of a message? Well, the truth is that it's because of you and me. It's because those in spiritual authority are supposed to be a good representation of what God is. We, we can't take this lightly. Uh, coming up to the pulpit, sharing the word, what does God say? What does he want from our lives? Well, his number one priority is for sinful and fallen man to be reconciled to God. He calls all his prodigals home. So what's the reason? For you personally, because he loves you. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he's going to be calling you through his word to a relationship with him. And the religious leaders failed. And religion today also fails in many respects. Even, even in the best church that you could imagine, there's still problems that we have to go back to the word and say, we need to model ourselves off of what God says. So the lessons that we, we learned uh, in the first part were, number one, abuses of authority. Two, religious burdens false appearances, the love of accolades, the love of titles, and the pride in leadership. And somebody came up to me after service the last time and said, my last church had all of those, (laughs) six for six. But we see in Matthew 23 that this is a great handbook for anybody who is desirous of, of teaching others, of being a shepherd, a pastor, an elder, and things to that nature. And really a warning of what not to do. So as we jump in, I'm going to overlap starting with verse 13 and then really start covering uh, verse 16 because that's, we left off at 15. So just for the sake of fluidity, I'm going to start with 13. Jesus says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Pretty heavy stuff. Now, there's going to be some applications here. We're going to look at what does Jesus think that a spiritual system is supposed to look like. But 
It would be tragic for us as Christians, especially if we've been Christians for a while, not to look at this and say, what can I learn from this in my representation of God to my unsaved friends, family, co-workers, etc.? So we need to look at a few different applications here. But we're going to start with the swearing or the oaths or the promises. I promise to do something. Now, in those days, um, you could swear by the temple, God's you know, temple that was built, or the altar in the temple, and that really wasn't a binding oath. You may or may not have to perform that, that promise. So if I owe you $200 and we lived back then and I said, by next week, I swear by the temple, you're going to get that money. You might get it, you might not, according to the societal norms. Now, if you swore by the gold in the temple, whoa, well, that changes things. So if I swear by the gold in the temple, next week you're going to get that money, you're probably going to get that money, or I'm going to be held accountable. So you had to keep your word. Now, this is kind of weird because men assigned importance, shifting away from the things of God, like the temple and where God was supposed to dwell, uh, and onto earthly things that men assign value to, such as money, gold, the gift, something of, of worth. So we see that shift. And foolishly enough, religious men thought, well, because money is important to us, it must be important to God. They weren't spiritual men. And what is the major complaint for religion today? They just want my money. So it carries through 2,000 years later. The truth is that only God and the things of God can sanctify, consecrate, set apart, make perfect, make better us or things around us. It doesn't work in the opposite direction. So verse 21, I just want to read that again. Jesus says, he who swears by the temple swears by it and him, of course, God, who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits on it. So don't take these words lightly. Be careful of the associations now you're making with God, right? And really, it was a violation of the third commandment. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Jesus was saying what you're doing is really taking God's name in vain. You're assigning him to things that you shouldn't be assigning him to. All right, so a few points to understand. Number one, for us, be careful what we assign God to. There's a term called pairing, where you take two things and you make the association. And if it's something negative, the thing you're pairing it to will also have a negative association. So pairing. We can look at as believers, our promises, our word. And the truth is, are we keeping our word? Do people have good associations when they look at us and when we do business and deal with others? Now, the other thing is lifestyle. Remember, the word Christian was a derogatory term in the beginning. You little Christ followers, it was like derogatory. But now we wear that as a badge of honor. Yes, I am a Christian. But does my lifestyle bear that out? You know, am I making good associations with Christ and my lifestyle? Or do I need some work? Now, in religion, um, Jesus really had a problem with a lot of the ornaments and the relics and the idols that were in the religious system, which really still carry through to today. Again, assigning God to something of inanimate value, that's problematic. In other words, kind of revering money and the things of money and associating God with that. He has a problem with that. And then three, taking the Lord's name in vain, the third commandment, right? And it's not just cursing, it's you know, associating God into the foolishness into our lives at times. Sometimes if we're in the flesh or we're backslidden, it's better not to say, not, maybe not to preach, because look at a bad association that we're making. And four, this is from the Old Testament. 
into Ecclesiastes, into the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, into James, keeping our word. Jesus says, forget about all those oaths. Throw that away. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. And James picks that up immediately in, in, in the book of James, and he reiterates that. Otherwise, we're encouraging deceit. And you've heard it. Look, we say, okay, does anybody here today say I swear by the temple? Probably not. I never have. But some today will say, I swear to God, or I swear on my eyes, or I swear on my grave. What's that about? You have no control whether you live or die anyway. That's in God's hands. So you can hear, you'll hear that today. If you really have to go that far to convince somebody that you're going to keep your word, Maybe that means that we're not keeping our word normally. Maybe we're not a person of integrity. And the more we swear and get excited, it's just going to look foolish, right? So we need to keep our word. Even as believers, I'll be there. I'll do that. You can count on me. Maybe not thinking it through. And then later having to not keep their word, right? It's the same principle here. And it's amazing. Jesus calls the religious leaders blind, And in one portion of scripture, he says, you're the blind leading the blind. It's sad because the followers were blind, spiritually blind. They didn't know anything about God. And they were following men who looked the part and acted the part. But they weren't godly men. They were blind as well. And Jesus says, what happens if the blind lead the blind? Both fall into a ditch. And that's, of course, troubling. Verse 23, Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. This is really like the term I've heard majoring on the minors or disproportionate attention. And the concept of tithing is really started in the Old Testament, carries through to the New Testament, and it meant that uh, those who weren't in spiritual uh, leadership or, or ministry would take a portion of their salary and support those in ministry so that they didn't have to be concerned with farming and, and working the land and real estate so they could be totally focused on the things of God and then feed the, the rest of the populace. So it kind of was like God's ecosystem. So that's where the whole thing of tithing comes from. But what these guys did was they took these little herbaceous plants and, and my wife and I have a garden, and we have these little, uh, three of them, all three of them. And you get the little seed, and could you imagine like getting 10 seeds and say, saying, this one little seed I'm going to give to God. Look at me, I'm very spiritual. Or, or anise or mint or whatever the, the heck they were doing there. Um, and they were just really focusing on that. Now, to me, that's a diversionary tactic. And Jesus was saying that. You're really focusing on that. You're getting the people to think you're very spiritual, but you're leaving so, such important things like justice and mercy and faith being undone. It's kind of like, uh, you know, don't look at the man behind the curtain, look over here. It's a diversionary tactic, right? And that was, of course, uh, problematic. He said, you, you should tithe, but don't leave the other ones undone. Now, they were looking at it as a, an either-or situation, I'll tell you the truth, when I go to a smorgasbord, and um, I love to eat, especially if there's a variety of food, and if it's a smorgasbord and it's all you can eat, they're probably going to lose money on me. But the truth is, I'm going to pick my favorite foods to eat, and I'm going to load up my plate with it. But God's word is not a smorgasbord table. See, we, we have to take the totality of his word. And that's why there are some maybe 
denominations or factions that will focus on certain things and never cover the entire Bible. You could be there 20, 30 years, and that's troubling as well because then there are certain uh, things that they like, uh, they'll focus on, but they'll leave the other stuff undone. So we see that going on here. Now, I want to focus on these three, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and just go into it for a little bit. The word justice is an interesting word because justice has an element of condemnation. That's interesting. There's a large semantic range in the Greek for justice, and condemnation is a little part of that. Now, justice, uh, we all want justice, don't we? We see things that are wrong. We look on the TV. uh, You know, somebody's being oppressed. We want justice. That's important to us as a society. We crave that. However, there is an action for and against. Now, God's word always said to take care of the widows, the fatherless, and the poor. You see that all throughout the the Old Testament and the New Testament, and especially people of faith, because they had no voice in society, at least you, my people, my believers. If you know my word, you should take care of the widows, the fatherless, and the poor. And that wasn't happening here. So that action for the, the oppressed was lacking. Okay? Now, we look at the, the action against. This is interesting because the action against when it comes to justice was to resist evil in our own communities. And again, God's people of faith, are you resisting evil? Are you resisting what's going on in the culture, even though it's wrong, the hypocrisy? And the religious leaders were not. They were actually a part of that hypocrisy, and that was problematic as well. There was a, um, a guy in the Old Testament in Numbers And the children of Israel were uh, mingling with another people group, and they were doing, you know, sexual improprieties, orgies and stuff. And there was also, um, with that, they were worshiping false gods. They were worshiping demons. And as this was going on, God sent a plague through his people. And Phinehas, it's very deep into the Old Testament, it's a great portion of scripture, he, the leaders were supposed to do something about it. Phinehas ran a a javelin through two people, and he stopped the plague. But what did he do? He took an action against. He, he meted out justice, and it saved the rest of the people from that plague. Probably not preached that often. It's a pretty heavy portion of scripture. But he understood what justice meant. Now, two, mercy. There's an element of compassion in mercy. Now, mercy is, in the old days, when a king went to war against another king, armies against an army, the army that was the loser, they would take the king by force, bring him to the victorious king, force him down on the ground, and the victorious king would put his foot on the person's neck. And he would decide what to do with that king. He could either show mercy or he could take his life. Now, mercy is important because a a position of authority, okay, especially today, you could be a teacher, a principal, a CEO, a senator, a police officer, a pastor. These are all positions of authority and power. And if you have that position, you have to show mercy, That comes with it. Otherwise, you become a tyrant. These guys were tyrants. Remember the woman caught in adultery. They they said, we caught her in the very act. They grabbed her. They took her out to the public square. These were religious men. And they said, what are you going to do about her, Jesus? They really wanted him to stone her to death. And they would have just sat there, no problem, while she was getting pelted with those rocks and had no problem with it. They showed no mercy for this woman. But Jesus showed mercy and compassion. Let me tell you something. If there's any place that we need mercy and justice shown, it's in the spiritual system. Okay, the third thing was faithfulness. Faithfulness. 
There's a lot to this. Trusting God, revering God, being close to God, having a relationship with God. Religious leaders, not really. They had the appearance of trusting God. They had the the long robes and they they prayed on the street corners and no doubt their prayer sounded beautiful. They uh, worked and they, they tied their little garden herbs and they would come to the temple with the little herbs in their hand. Right? But were they faithful? No, because they had scams. Even non-biblical sources will tell you that the religious system at the time was corrupt. It was all about money, and the guys making the most money were the spiritual leaders. So they could put on a show about uh, how much they trusted God and how faithful they were, but their lives weren't living it. Now, what about us? Do we talk a good talk, but every little uh, opportunity to make a few bucks... You know, we, we scrape and scrape. And there's some that have really nice stuff, but they, they're so focused on money. They're so focused on what somebody else has. You know, do I really believe? Do I really trust God? This is why I love to look at missionaries because they come up and they have to trust God because their entire future is in his hands. But as believers, do we sing a good song, but our behavior shows something completely different? Let's not get caught up in that trap. Why did they neglect the other three? Why did they tithe? Well, the tithing was easy. It was simple uh, 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 illustration or exercise in bean counting. Taking 10%, putting it out on the side. They had plenty, so 10% was nothing to them. Why did they neglect the other three? Because they weren't living in the spirit. You see, in order to do that, you had to have God's spirit, right? Um, 1 Samuel 16, uh, I taught that this Wednesday. I love that portion of scripture. Because you see a man, King Saul, who did it in his own strength, who had a form of outward religiosity, but he didn't have the spirit. He actually, God anointed him, and he had his spirit rest on him in the beginning when he was humble. And Samuel drove God so far away that God removed his Holy Spirit from King Saul. And who did he alight it on? David. Little David, the little shepherd boy. The little guy who had nothing, the youngest in his family. Certainly when stuff was getting handed out, he would get the last in that culture. But he loved the Lord, and God endowed him with his Holy Spirit. Right? I know which one I want. <laughs> Verse 24, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, you kind of have to know the culture to understand what is he talking about, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. That sounds ridiculous. But it's also an example of disproportionate attention. Leviticus 17 told the Jews that they were not to drink blood. The pagans did that. The life is in the, in the blood of the animal. You will not drink blood. So they would drain the uh, blood of an animal if they were going to eat meat and do it in such a way that, you know, can you get every little drop out? Probably not. But what the Pharisees did was their wines, they would put run through like a cheesecloth or something or a, a fabric. And just in case a gnat, you know, you ever call it like high sea bug juice? It's, it seems to attract all the bugs. And, you know, if you leave it out long enough at a picnic, well, that's kind of gross. But <laughs> that's not why they did it. They did it because they were concerned that if they swallowed a bug, the bug had blood in it and they were violating Leviticus 17. Again, disproportionate attention. So that's what they did. And Jesus, actually, my wife and I ate at a a rabbi's house once, an Orthodox rabbi, and we actually saw this in action. They still do it. They ran their liquids through a a strainer just in case any bugs got in the liquids. So uh, you never have to worry about eating a bug over there. But the truth is, Jesus says, hey, you guys 
you guys are swallowing a camel. Now, if you really think about eating a camel and all the blood that's in it, it's kind of disgusting. But he was saying, you know, you're so concerned about that little gnat, but all the other things you do are just a facade. And it's, it's a show. It's a lie. You guys are hypocrites. And, you know, you're concerned about that little bit of blood, but you're swallowing uh, a billion times more than that with your behaviors in, in other areas. So they could be, they could tithe, but they were mean to that woman that they brought into the public square that I spoke about. Um, and even as believers, we could do everything right according to the book, but our hearts may not be in the right place. Jesus said that on the Sermon on the Mount. You guys don't commit adultery, you don't commit murder, but you, it's in your heart all the time. You're guilty. So even as believers, um, we can do and go through the motions, but be unfriendly, mean, unkind, not show compassion or mercy. And we've completely missed the point, even though we think we're following the law to the letter. Verse 25, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I just think these, I just wonder sometimes when I read this, what were they doing while he was reading this? I mean, while he was saying it, probably plotting his destruction. But I also believe that many of them were convicted and they changed. And that's reflected in scripture. We see that some notable Pharisees, we see some notable priests in Acts chapter 6. So I believe that some, you know, just took it, might have bowed their heads and, and changed. See, Jesus wasn't hating them by doing this. He was loving them. Right? He was telling them what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. Uh, Proverbs 27, 6, great scripture. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. When we surround ourselves with those that uh, are part of our propaganda machine, they're really not our friends, and we're really not friends to them. Proverbs 28.23 says, He who rebukes a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters with the tongue. Who are we surrounding ourselves with? You know, Are we into the word? Maybe some of the word convicts us at times, and it's painful, but it's good for us. It keeps us on the right track. So the Pharisees, two examples here. Number one, they had these utensils that they had, um, dishes, cups, pitchers, and you know, they would cleanse it and, and you know, triple wash them and stuff. And he said, you know, you make them look real pretty. Some had gold and some were ornate, but inside they're, they're filthy. Now, there's nothing worse than if you go to somebody's house and they give you a cup of water and it looks good on the outside and you look inside as you're drinking it and there's all kinds of dirt and slimy stuff on there. You're like, oh, I'm really not that thirsty. But he wasn't speaking about literally eating on these utensils. He was speaking about what was inside. They made themselves look beautiful on the outsides, uh, but inside their hearts were bad. The other example was the tombs. In those days, and uh, according to Levitical law, uh, if there was a tomb or a grave and you uh, stepped over it by accident or you brushed up against the wall of the tombs, uh, you could make yourself, according to the law, ceremonially unclean for a while. So what they did in those days was they would whitewash them with a lime solution, very bright, 
So you couldn't mistakenly touch something that was dead and defile, defile yourselves. Now he's saying to them, you guys are like those tombs. You look really good on the outside, but what's on the inside? That's disgusting. Imagine if somebody said that to, to me or, or you. I mean, that's got to be, I really had to hit the heart. He says, you guys are like dead inside, like dead men's bones, rotting flesh, but you look good on the outside. You know, this is amazing because in a world of, uh, or in a society of appearances, uh, this is something to take heart. Is it really important how somebody looks? I have to tell you a funny story. There was a guy who, who comes, he's a nice guy. I'm not going to say his name. He comes sometimes because he lives far. So our fellowship, and one time uh, I had really hurt my knee in the beginning of the year. So I was eating the same, but I wasn't doing exercise, put on a few pounds. And the guy proceeded to tell me, we were having a conversation. He goes, yeah, you look like you're eating good. You put on a few, a few pounds, looking a little pudgy. So I was like... <laughs> So he kept going. So I said, stop, back up for a minute. <laughs> I wasn't mad at him, but I, was, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, what does it matter if I'm getting some gray hair or my hair doesn't look right today or my pants are wrinkled or I'm putting on a few pounds? It's all about appearances. We notice appearances so quickly. A lot of times we'll meet someone and immediately, because of society, make a judgment about them. Their look, Right? Sometimes the youth are intimidated to come into church because they've been judged so long by their tattoos or piercings or whatever they have going on. Appearances. Jesus was saying, man, that is all wrong. 2,000 years later, we're still doing the same thing. And it's also happening in the church, and it shouldn't. Talk about living in a fishbowl when you're a, a, in, in leadership. I mean, you're like in the fishbowl. Everybody can see what's going on. So um, let's move on with that. Jesus says to them, he goes, you're filled with extortion and excess. Well, we understand extortion. We understand how they would, the religious system would go up to the little old ladies and promise them a better heaven if they signed their homes away to them as Corban and so that the religious system could keep amassing wealth. We see that today, don't we? Some religious institutions are multi-billion dollar organizations, right? Jesus had a problem with that. He felt it was extortion. But what about excess? The truth is that these spiritual leaders showed no restraint. Again, you look at extra biblical sources from Jews who wrote these sources. How corrupt the high priest was and his cronies. How much wealth that they amassed. How they really worked themselves into the political structure of the Roman government at the time. They were traitors. They were two-faced. This is all history. And they showed no restraint. Now, we can look at that as well as believers. Somehow we have the idea as Americans, and this may not sit well with some, that the American dream means whatever I see, I want. My neighbor has an in-ground pool, well, I should have one. My neighbor's putting on an addition, well, I should have one. You know, I got 30,000 miles on my vehicle, I need a new vehicle. That's the American dream, is it? Um, the more I read about economics and what's happening in our country, the more I see that it's because of that attitude because we can't live within our means, we have to live above our means, that that's why the bubble broke. The housing market, the banking market, there's no liquidity in society. Do the study. Everybody's buying stuff that they can't afford. It's terrible. And we're, we're in real trouble right now in our economy, and so is Europe, right? I would just say this, and this may not sit well either, if we're all about, and we're always talking about our stuff, maybe we're materialistic. Maybe we're full of excess. And maybe it shouldn't be, you know. 
Again, a lot of the, you show me any church in any culture, any pagan culture, and I'll show you some church where some of this stuff gets into the church. It's, it's like leaven. It's problematic. So this is what was going on at the time. He says, you're full of lawlessness. Now, this is puzzling because these guys pr- prided themselves on following the law to a T. But Jesus says, you're lawless. The problem was that their heart was wrong. It was just external. It fooled the people, but it didn't fool God. Now, we have to stop for a moment and look at three words. One is hypocrisy. The other one's heart issues. And the third one is motives. Hypocrisy. Nobody likes to be called a hypocrite. That's probably one of the worst words, worse than a curse word, especially if you're a believer and you're called a hypocrite. Well, these religious leaders were hypocrites. And again, if you even look at the Greek word, it just means to answer from under. And when um, you know, theater would be happening and you didn't have all the, the fancy visual media and stuff that we have today, they would have little masks with a stick. And if you were a lion, you'd put the lion over your face and you go, roar, and people would think you're a lion. But what you're doing is you're answering from under that mask. You would play your part. That's hypocrisy. They played the part of spiritual leaders. And that was problematic. Now, I'll tell you this, that if we're honest with ourselves, and we've been Christians long enough, we've played the hypocrite a few times. I know I have. And let's just be honest. It's right in the scripture. Um, St. Paul uh, confronted St. Peter because he was being a hypocrite. And this is right in sacred scripture. So we, we do it. But hopefully, we're not making a lifestyle of it. Hopefully, we, we get better and, and try not to worry so much about appearances. Two, heart issues and motives. It really matters what's going. The Bible says, and again, I just covered this in 1 Samuel 16, that man looks, looks at the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. Yet God's not fooled. You know, when I go to prayer, I don't even try to manipulate God in my prayers. I'm like, Lord, you know what I'm thinking right now. You know that I haven't been right this week. And I just come clean because he knows anyway. But I want to repent. I want to change that. I want him to help me work to get better. Uh, it's, it's a foolish thing to try to pray and actually try to manipulate God the way we manipulate others. You know, it, it's pointless. It's senseless, senseless. And motives. Why do we do the things that we do? Do we put on... The, our flesh, if we're in the church, is for everyone to think that we're spiritual or that we know more of the Bible than we do. You know, there's times that I'll come across scriptures and say, this is what I think it is, but I'm not really sure. Uh, so that's something to look at as well. So verse 29... Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then and measure the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? So what would happen is, in those days, again, understanding the culture, is that they would see the tombs of the different prophets. Even today, if you go to the Holy Land, uh, there are even New Testament uh, figures that churches have, like shrines, and some swear they have the bones of John the Baptist and pieces of the cross of Jesus when he was crucified. I think so many people say they have a piece of the cross. That must have been one big cross, you know what I'm saying? But... They, do, they adorn the tombs, they 
put nice plaques on there. They put flowers. And again, it still happens today. Happened in Jesus's day. And he was saying they were actually speakers. Oh, it's terrible that Jeremiah and Isaiah were killed the way they were. And um, whatever the case may be, if we were around back then, we would, have, we would have stood firm. And Jesus is like, no, you wouldn't have. Because he knew that when John the Baptist was around, the religious leaders purposely looked the other way so that John would get killed because he was causing problems in the religious system. And at the very time that Jesus was saying these things, they were plotting his death as well, even if they just considered him a prophet. That's two of them that they were going to kill in their own lifetime. So he was calling them again hypocrites. And yes, Jesus at times did preach fire and brimstone. There was a time and a place for it. So um, there's a lot of sanitizing of the Bible today and, and changing and remaking the image of Jesus. But the truth is the only true image of Jesus is the biblical image of Jesus. Verse 34. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So the killing of the prophets, of God's righteous messengers by their own people is well documented in the Old Testament. Yes, in the Old Testament. Uh, From Abel, and what does this do? This affirms the Genesis account of creation. All throughout the New Testament, we see affirmation of the Genesis account, which uh, Pastor Mike's been teaching on Wednesday night. It's, it's, It's great, going back to Genesis. All the way to Zechariah, which if you look at the way they ordered their Old Testament, it's kind of different the way we did our same books, just a different order. Uh, Second Chronicles 24 seems to be one of the last uh, chapters, and it chronicles all the deaths of the prophets and the messengers that their own people killed. So here's the last guy here. Now, he says that uh, Zechariah was murdered between the temple and the altar. If you understand the way the temple was set up, uh, you know, the, there was the altar and there were the courts and there was the actual structure. Literally, what he's saying is this prophet was murdered on God's front lawn. Isn't that amazing? So if the temple was God's house, they had the audacity and the rage to kill this man, one of God's messengers, right on God's front lawn. So that's what you have going on there. Now, what was his crime? That he addressed the people and said that they were in sin and God was very unhappy with their lifestyles. That's why they killed him. Very sad. Verse 37, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus reflects the dual nature of God. He was angry, righteous anger. He was upset about their teachings and their lifestyles. But at the same time, he lamented and his heart was broken because he wanted to take that whole spiritual system and just come in there as their Messiah and just love them and be welcomed by them. But they wouldn't have that. So you see this dual nature of God, a loving God, but a God who also needs to be firm. And that's the beauty of the gospel. We're all sinners, starting from me. Uh, We need to repent. And God sent his son into the world 
so that we could have eternal life, that whosoever would believe would not perish. Turn to him, repent of my self-directed ways, fall on our knees, and Lord, I just want to follow you. Seals us with his Holy Spirit, we have abundant life here and especially in the afterlife. That's beautiful. Very um, illustration here with the hen and chicks. Do you know, I've heard this many a times, if you know any farmers, uh, they'll tell you the same story. If there was ever a barn fire or a fire where a hen was taking care of her little babies, and maybe the hen could escape, but she knew that the babies wouldn't make it, what the hen does is, and this has happened many a times, the hen will hunker down, gather her chicks together, spread her wings and her body over the babies. And if the fire is not all-consuming, uh, farmers have actually found a, a roasted chicken, so to speak, uh, and when they remove it, the babies are still alive. Her, her wings act as an insulator to the heat so that the little babies could live. So, you know, we read the scripture and we could zip right by that. But when we really do a study on every word of the mouth of God, there's a lesson in there. Isn't that, that's like heartbreaking, isn't it? But that was the desire of the Messiah. Now, there's a, a doctrine out there called irresistible grace, which says that when God swoons you and he wants to save you and you want to, he wants you to be his elect, that you have no choice but to be swooned by him. Not so right here. What Jesus is saying is the optimal was for him to be accepted by Jerusalem, but they rejected him. Right? We, have, we have will. We're free moral agents. We decide whether we want to follow him or not. Hopefully we, re- we make the right choices. Verse 38, he says, your house is desolate. Now the temple itself, which they looked at and they prided themselves on, um, was going to be desolate. A few decades later, the Romans were going to come in, we've documented this, and destroy that entire uh, temple and part of Jerusalem. However, their house was also desolate in their spiritual house. They were devoid of anything that resembled God. And that was tragic. And we need to look at this and look at our own spiritual house. We can come to church. We can very easily know the terms, brother, how's it going, blessed, that's awesome, praise God. And we can come to church and we can dress up and we can make friends, but are we playing a part? Where does our, where does our house look like? When we really go before the Lord, are we truthful with him? Are we truthful with others? Is there maybe some work that we can do? Or is it just a facade of spirituality? People come to church for various reasons. And the Bible is clear as the times continue towards the time that the Lord returns that the church will become more apostate. It's not going to become better. You know, where maybe 200 years ago, 9 out of 10 churches were preaching good doctrine. That's going to go down, maybe the 1 or 2 out of 10. It's just what the Bible tells us. So what does our spiritual house look like? That's only a question that we can rectify with our maker. The nation will say in verse 39, you won't see me again, Israel. You won't see me again, Jerusalem. It's so you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I'm really excited about starting next Sunday. Matthew 24 is a great portion of scripture. Matthew 24 is probably the most, the Olivet Discourse. It's about the disciples looking at the temple and then asking Jesus about the end times. When's the the temple going to be destroyed? When is the end of the age? When is the Lord going to return? When are things going to change on the earth? When is he going to rule? And Matthew 24, actually, I'm breaking it up into three sermons because it's that good that I don't want to rush through it. But it's really exciting. Uh, Jesus starts to tell us what to expect in the future. Now, this portion of Scripture seems to be referring to the second coming. 
uh, and Israel will have to go through some difficult times, the tribulation, but the Lord will still come back for her. I want to leave it with this, three words. Hypocrisy, representation, and opportunity. I think we got the hypocrisy part down pretty good. Uh, Religious leaders were uh, improperly representing God, and God was not happy with that. I want to read to you a scripture in 2 Corinthians 5.20. One verse. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I believe the Apostle Paul was in a passion. He was a passionate man. I love to read what he writes. But check this out. Ambassadors for Christ. If somebody asked you tomorrow to be an ambassador to Germany, that would be an honor. Wow, I'm going to represent this country. You know, and, and you go to foreign lands and say, let me tell you about Germany. Let me tell you about the culture, the language. God, as though God were pleading. Imagine God pleading us to do something for him. Does he need us to do anything? Absolutely not. But that's his desire for us to work alongside of him, to represent him at some times. I mean, that is really encouraging. God pleading to be reconciled back to him through his son, Jesus Christ. If we're believers, we all have opportunity. Everywhere we go, we meet someone who's unsaved. We also have representation. If you've been at church long enough where you've understood the Bible, you may be the only light that the unsaved world sees. That's exciting. So we all have, listen, religious leaders blew it. Some religious leaders today blew it. Sometimes I'm going to blow it. But God may use you in an incredible way. You might say, me? Yes, you. He created you. He made you unique with your own gifts and talents and spiritual abilities. So I would say this. Are we ambassadors? And the truth is that God is desirous for all of us to represent him and to bring others into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We could gloss over this and say, this is for the religious system. Uh, Very good sermon today. I'm going home. But it would be a crime. It would be a travesty if we didn't see the application to us as individuals to go out there, to represent God, and to show them the way of salvation. Let's pray.